be seated. And I invite you to join now in taking your copy of God's Word and turning with me back to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, as we still continue on in our study of the book of Nehemiah. As last week we looked at the end of chapter 6, we saw that Nehemiah and the covenant community are finishing up the project of rebuilding and restoring the wall around Jerusalem. As we've read and we've seen, it's taken a lot of prayer. There's been a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. There's been endurance. There's been a lot of patience. And now, as we will read, the last door and last gate have been hung. So the job is done, and it has been done well. But at this point, Nehemiah 7 and forward, we are reminded of the why of this project. There's been some hints of it along the way. We've looked more at the, the what and the how of it, but why? Why the importance of this? Why the urgency? Why undertake this? This wasn't part of a honeydew list for Nehemiah. He didn't wake up one morning, made a first day of retirement, first day of vacation, walks into the kitchen, and there on the counter, his wife has left him a honey-do list. And the number one is, said, honey, you need to repair and rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. That's not it. This isn't also some sort of community project where they get credit or helps them build up a resume for political use. What we will see starting in this passage and moving forward is the completion of wall has a greater meaning and motivation to it, something that is eternal, something that affects us to this very day. So hopefully, Lord willing, we'll see that this morning together in this passage. Let me pray for us as we come now together before God's word. Father, it is our, it is our privilege, and I pray it is also our pleasure for us to pause now from the cares and concerns of this world and to come before you and your word. As Thomas explained with the children this morning, this is you speaking to us. This isn't some arcane, dusty words that may or may not have some relevance to this day for us, depending on how we feel or what we have for breakfast. This is the eternal God speaking his eternal truth for our eternal good. We pray then that you would open our hearts and our minds to this. Help us, Lord, be attentive. And may your spirit bless us with his work and ministry to us through this word. We pray now in that wonderful and gracious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Nehemiah 7, 1 through 4. We will stand together now for the reading of God's word. Now when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors, appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some of their guard posts and some in front of their own homes, 
The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. The grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. May I be so bold to ask that we take a moment for each of us to consider why do you worship? I want you to think through what is your reason for worship? What is your impetus for being here? What is the driving force or forces that compelled you this morning to set your alarm, get out of bed, take a shower, either come here for breakfast or eat breakfast on your own, put on your Sunday best, and come to worship. Why are you here? Let's, let's start with wrong answers to that question. First wrong answer is because it's family tradition. I come to worship because that's the tradition of my family. Like having turkey for Thanksgiving, ham at Christmas, and spending a week at the beach in the summer. We go to church on Sundays. We're several generations ARPs. And good ARPs do their best to get to church on Sunday. Another wrong answer is because I'm a good Southerner. And all good Southerners go to church, right? We all, generally speaking, hang portraits of Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson in our home. We can trace our family lineage all the way back to the motherland. Either that be Scotland, Ireland, or England. If it's not one of those three, then you're not truly Presbyterian. But we also go to church every Sunday. Every good Southerner goes to church. It's a part of our identity. It's part of our culture. But those are the wrong answers. So what's, what's the right answer? What's, what's the answer you should have thought of thinking for your reason and motivation to come to worship this morning? Well, I think if Thomas had asked the children this during the children's sermon, one of the children would have eventually said, Jesus? The question mark, right? Because Jesus is usually the right answer. And Jesus is the right answer for this. It is certainly because of Jesus we want to come and to worship. When we know, not just with our mind, but with our hearts, when we know through faith who Jesus is, the second person in the triumph Godhead, Emmanuel, God incarnate, Jesus, the one who saved his people from their, from their sins, when we know who he is and what he has done for us, from his incarnation, through his life, through his suffering, to his death, to his resurrection, to his ascension. When we know that, then certainly that should drive us to worship. If we were to know those things about Jesus, and it doesn't compel us to worship, then chances are that means that you're not a Christian. And therefore, why would you want to worship? It's just knowledge. Just answers. But when we truly know who he is and what he has done, that should compel us to worship. 
And that leads to another good reason for worship, and that is true faith. As the Heidelberg Catechism teaches, true faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold as true all that God has revealed to us in Scripture, it is also a wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit creates in me by the gospel that God has freely granted not only to others but to me also forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation. These are gifts of sheer grace granted solely by Christ's merits. I'm a Westminster Standards guy. I love the Westminster Standards, but man, I love the Heidelberg Catechism as well because what a wonderful definition of faith that is. And by knowing that definition, that's, that's reason enough to worship there, isn't it? That God has freely granted to me forgiveness of all my sins, the eternal righteousness of his son, and salvation to be his child. Those are good reasons. Jesus and faith are good reasons to worship. But I want to add another reason here for us, and that's what we have seen with with Nehemiah. Another reason why we should want to worship is because of God's providence and protection in our lives. As we talked about last week, and and God's graciousness, he has made known to us his fingerprints all over our lives. We are like the book of Esther, where we can look and see how God has been at work in all of our lives. That his sovereign providence is evident from the day we've been born. Just like Nehemiah has been sure to testify to since we were first introduced to him in this book. As we saw last week, Nehemiah takes every chance he can to testify to the goodness of God's providence. He takes every chance he can to testify that not only is God, that God is in control, but that God is at work. And he testifies about it all along the way. And we are reminded that we have that same testimony as well. If we would just see it as such, if we would give up that foolish talk of luck and chance, I got lucky just by chance and see, no, God has been at work. Just as sure as he's been at work in Nehemiah's life, he is at work the same in our lives. And we are called to see and to understand that. And just like the providence of God moved Nehemiah to worship, it should move us to worship as well. And so our, this, our passage this morning is leading us into the reason for the wall, and that reason is worship. We've gotten through the, the what and the how, now we're being reminded of the why. The why of the wall. The why that God has been at work in Nehemiah's life to lead up to the wall has been for worship. Remember early on in our series, we we said that the book that comes before Nehemiah is Ezra. And Ezra and Nehemiah pretty much go together, so much so that in the Hebrew Bible, they're actually one book. Because these books are telling the same story from two different perspectives. Ezra's perspective is as a priest, and Nehemiah's perspective as a government official. And Ezra goes back to work on the temple, and Nehemiah is called back to work on the wall. But both of those projects are leading to the same goal. 
And the goal is that God is calling his people out of exile back to Jerusalem so that they can come back and live as God's covenant community and be committed to the worship of God. So as Nehemiah and some of the covenant community are working the wall, Ezra is up the hill. He's working on the temple and religious reforms. And it's all for the same goal. It's for the goal of worship. That God is bringing his people out of exile so they can now be a faithfully worshiping covenant community. And what we have seen Nehemiah doing so far is laying the groundwork of worship because of providence. That when we take time to slow down and we look over our lives, we will see how God has been at work. And this should lead us to worship. Many of us are familiar with the verse, be still and know that I am God. And that stillness and knowing God is knowing that he has been at work in our lives. That we see his fingerprints all over our lives. And so therefore we are compelled to worship the one who is working together all things for good. So we said last week, that's Romans 8.28. God is working together all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. That's a statement of providence. That we can look back over our lives. And this is the good that God has been doing. And this is the good that God is doing now. And he has promised to do good to me. We talked about it again before with Joseph. Looking back over tremendous wrecks in his life. And was he able to say, what man meant for evil, God meant for good. When his brothers wanted to kill him, God used it for good. When his brothers sold him into slavery, God used it for good. When Potiphar's wife accused him of sexual assault and had him put in prison, God used it for good. God's providence is meant to lead us to worship like it's done with Nehemiah and all of God's people throughout history. But this isn't meant just to be about the big events of providence. Where we look back and go, when I pray for that job, God blessed me getting that job. God saved me from this wreck. Our God has helped me to recover from this wreck. That when my, my family member had a serious illness or when I had a serious illness, that God saved me in prayer through that. So those are big provinces. Those are very much a part of our testimony. But there's also what we can call small providences as well. That God's work is evident even in the most mundane normal parts of life. For example, do you have anything good in your life? Is there anything you look at in your life and go, this is good? Either people, our job, our situation, our, our home, our car, our money in the bank. Is there anything you look at in your life and go, that's good? James tells us, Every good, every good gift, every perfect gift is from the Father of life, from the Father of lights. I look around, and I'm very thankful all of you are breathing. At this point in service, we haven't had to do CPR. We've been talking, we've been singing, 
We've been breathing. Why? God himself gives to all mankind breath. Acts 17.25 You woke up this morning. And I'm glad you woke up this morning. And I'm glad you came to church. Do you know why you woke up? I lay down and slept. And I woke again for the Lord sustained me. Psalm 3.5 Do you have food? We had a lot of food downstairs this morning. What do we pray for every week? Our Father who art in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. Some of us are fed well. I had two breakfasts this morning. I'm very proud of that fact. Had breakfast at home, then came here to have breakfast again. I lived out my hobbit dream to have first and second breakfast. And I wonder why I don't lose weight. And I have to keep on buying bigger pants. But I trust you're seeing the point here. God is sovereign and providential even in the most mundane and normal parts of our lives. And I would say, especially because of that, we should worship God. When we understand how much we are truly dependent on Him to wake us up in the morning, to give us breath, to put food on the table, for us to have good things, for us to enjoy in life, the most mundane things. When we understand how much we are truly dependent upon God, that should lead us to worship Him. That we are gathered this morning to worship because it was God who woke you up this morning. That annoying alarm clock may have gone off. Or that annoying family member may have gotten in your face to tell you to wake up, but ultimately it was God who woke you up. And when you took that breath, it was the Father who filled your lungs with air. And it's the Trinity who's provided all the good things of life to help you live. And let's be honest, we live well, don't we? So from those big providences of salvation, of God was at work in your life to bring you salvation to the most mundane thing that you have money in the bank. Excuse me, you have money in the bank to pay $18 for a gallon of gas to come to church. God is providential in all that, and that should lead us to worship. Because that's the example set by Nehemiah that we have seen since chapter 1. So we find then that worship is the background to and the reason for the project on the wall. Yes, the wall was to help provide a good and secure place. uh, It was for protection. But it was also to help prepare a good and secure place for God's people to come and worship Him. They needed it for defense, but they needed it for defense because they needed it for worship. Building the walls. Setting the doors and the gates in place were only a prelude to that real work of establishing the covenant community in which faith was alive and faith was real that led to worship. The walls were necessary for the purposes of protection, but what really mattered was the state of the people's heart for the worship of God. So Ezra oversaw the building of the temple For the purpose of establishing a center for godly worship, Nehemiah oversaw the project of rebuilding the wall also for worship. Because that's the whole point of redemption, isn't it? 
Why does God save sinners like you and me? So that we will come and worship Him. As we've said, every good ARP, no short of catechism number one. What is the chief in a man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Part of glorifying is worshiping. What were we made to do to worship God? And as John Piper reminds us and teaches, we also glorify, worship God when we enjoy Him. When we take time to look back over our lives and see all the good things God has given us, then we enjoy Him and that compels us to worship. This reminds us then that worship is more of a matter of the mind and heart. It's a good reminder because it's easy to fall into the thinking that your surroundings are what determine your worship. During the week, as you think about and prepare to come to worship on Sunday morning, you probably think about coming here to worship. And God has blessed us with a beautiful sanctuary. I appreciate Terry pointing that out. And I would ask Lee if he would agree. But I know Lee would say yes because he's a nice guy. He's not going to disagree with me in the middle of a sermon. But we have a beautiful sanctuary to worship in. And I'm biased, but I think it's one of the most beautiful sanctuaries you can find. But is this building with the stained glass windows and the pews and the pipe organ and the robes, is that what is supposed to define our worship? Can you only worship when you're here? Can you only worship in a place such as this? I like what Derek Thomas says about this. We can so easily become enamored of the building itself. Stained glass windows, it's fine architecture, it's history. And all of this is wonderfully exciting, but our gaze cannot stop at the qualities of a building. If all we do at the end is admire bricks and mortar, we have miserably failed in the main thing. Our chief end is to praise God. We were created for this. And our sense of fulfillment is wanting without it. My first experience in truly understanding what worship is meant to be did not take place on a Sunday morning in a sanctuary, stained glass windows and pews, and organs and pianos and hymns. It was on Tuesday evenings on the second floor of the Deacon Student Center at Winthrop University in the second floor conference room. That conference room didn't have stained glass windows, it didn't have pews, it didn't have an organ. On Tuesday nights, I had a music stand, a black metal music stand, two or three acoustic guitars, and padded cushion chairs. There was nothing sacred about the space. Yet in that very unsacred and austere conference room was where I was first struck by the enormity and holiness of God. It's where I learned to love the great old hymns of the faith. We would sing, Amazing grace, come thou fount, Jesus, lover of my soul, it is well with my soul, be thou my vision, so on and so forth. 
It's where I learned with other college students what it meant to pray. It's where I sat underneath the faithful preaching of the word week in and week out and learned about the Trinity and about grace and about mercy and what a blessed life it is to be a Christian. Nehemiah has helped set a place for worship, but worship was never meant to be of the place. It was meant to be of the God of the place. The wall secure, the temple's ready, and now the great task of worship needs to be addressed. The worship of the God of the wall, of the temple, of the city, of the people, of the universe now needed to be addressed. And it had to be addressed through some very practical needs among the people. As we saw before a couple weeks back, life within the walls were in shambles. Poverty was running amok. As it says here at the end of our passage, the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. So the work has been done, but they are living in poverty. Nehemiah needed to do something about this, so he does several things. He set gatekeepers. Their normal work was guarding the entrance gates of the temple. He set them on guard to the gates along the singers and the Levites, the tribe from whom the priests came. So we see even, even the choir and their choir rows were put on guard duty at the gates and the doors of the, of, of the wall of the city. As Dr. Derek Kidner observes, having the temple choir on duty at the gates of the city would show as clearly as anything else that the entire city, not just the professionals in the temple, were focused on the worship of God. So that was the first thing. The second thing is he addressed the need of leadership. And we see that in verse 2. I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the council, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. So Nehemiah sets these two men in charge of the day-to-day administration of local government. We've seen Hanani before in this, in this book. And he's been referred to as a brother. Very very much real, very much possibility that Hanani was, in fact, Nehemiah's blood brother. But did you notice why Nehemiah chose those two men to lead God's city? Wasn't it because here's my brother, let me, let me set him up and hook him up. Here's my brother and his best friend. Here you know, some, some of my crew from back in the day. Let me keep my crew around me so we can keep things going well. That's not what happens. He says they were faithful and God-fearing. That were their qualifications. You could trust them. And they were reverent of God. Nothing about charisma. Nothing about administration skills. Nothing they had a higher degree from an Ivy League school. Nothing about experience. Nehemiah says, I chose these two men because they were simple, faithful Christians. Now, watching overseas defense and overseeing future reform needed men of practical insight and resourcefulness as well as military competence. But Nehemiah understand that the key to this was faith. The faith entrusted to these two men and their faithfulness and godliness in their lives. And what a difference from our world around us today. It's interesting listening to uh, some, some conversations and, and commentary about the uh, 
selection of the next Supreme Court justice. And one of the angles that was tried to work is that they tried to get a justice in who wasn't from an Ivy League school. Because everybody else, same as on the Supreme Court, went to Ivy League, Harvard or Yale or Princeton. They said, well, let's get somebody different. Let's get somebody from a, not, a, a non-Ivy League school. And I believe the lady that's going to be put up for nomination is actually from an Ivy League school. But our world around us doesn't look for faithfulness or God-fearing people. Charisma, resumes, education, experience. Sadly, we're seeing that more and more in the church, aren't we? Leaders are sought because they're charismatic. Or they have a certain skill set we think that would work well within the church. Or their 10th generation in the church, the other nine generations serves in office, they should serve as well. Generally speaking, was the last time we spoke of someone's God-fearing in a positive way? Even as a qualification for leadership. I want so-and-so to lead because he or she is godly. And I want some, somebody godly leading this church. Nehemiah chose leaders because they had a healthy respect for God. Hananiah put the character of God first. In that sense, they were more God-fearing than many. John Witherspoon, as we know, signing the Declaration of Independence, said this. It is only the fear of God, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> it is only the fear of God that can deliver us from the fear of man. And that was a godly leadership. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. That was a godly leadership that Nehemiah saw these two men. But he put them into leadership to help accommodate the worship of God's people. That's the background of what we see in verse 3. Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. While they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. So, so the city was not to be open 24-7. It was only to be open at certain times. The gates were not to be open until the sun had risen to its fullest height, which would be around lunchtime. That means the mornings could be taken at a more leisurely pace, giving the folks within the city time to develop and practice a life of being called to be different by being a worshiping people. Remember, they're coming out of exile. They've been living in a foreign land with foreign people under a foreign religion. And this has been happening for several generations. They need to be re-educated. They need to be reminded. They need to be relearned of what it meant to be God's covenant people. And as God's covenant people, what it meant to worship, to glorify him, and to enjoy him forever. So godly leadership saw this need and they said, the need of worship and, and, and understanding of worship and faith is more important than commerce. So do not open the gates until 12 o'clock. That way we can give the morning to the people to help them remember who they are, who they belong to, and what it means to worship 
We will know godly leadership when it helps accommodate worship. Not stand in the way of worship. Not to make worship about themselves. But godly leadership will always accommodate the worship of God's people. But it's also worth noticing that godly leadership will lead to worship. As we've seen throughout this study, Nehemiah is a faithful, godly man. He is a man of prayer who prayed first, who prayed most, who prayed often. He's a man who loves to see, recognize, and acknowledge God's providence in his life. He's a man of God-given wisdom who led the people well. So now as the community turns from the wall and to the temple for worship, they do so with Nehemiah as their example. Nehemiah was there with them day after day. They saw his work ethic, but they prayed with him. And they heard him pray. They heard him share his testimonies about the goodness of God. They saw his godliness. They saw his faithfulness. And as we will see in the coming chapters, the covenant community comes willingly to worship God. And I would say they do that in part due to the godly leadership of Nehemiah. Nehemiah has shown them and reminded them of the goodness of God. And he worshiped the goodness of God. Or he worshiped because of the goodness of God. And I believe those people were affected by his leadership, by his example. And so when it came time to go back to the temple, they said, absolutely. I want to go worship because I want to worship like Nehemiah. I want to go worship because I have seen the example of Nehemiah. Brothers and sisters and friends, we should never make the mistake of underestimating how God uses our example to affect others. This past Wednesday night in our Bible study, we talked about that very thing. Looking first at the life of of St. Patrick and then other Christians throughout the ages, based upon what Paul teaches, imitate me as I imitate Christ. This scriptural call for us to live in that Christ-centered, Christ-focused Godly manner that inspires others, encourages others, serves as a model for others, and in that encourages others to worship as well. Godly leadership will always encourage others to worship. Think about this. Let's say you want to leave Bethel ARP for whatever reason. Just don't make it my fault in your in your in this hypothesis. Just, you want to leave for whatever reason. And you're looking for a new church. And you start to get to know people from that church. What will make you want to go worship there? When you're around those people during the week. And they're horrible. They gossip. They lie. They're not trustworthy. You don't even know how they make it at church on Sundays because they're so plaster drunk during the weekend How in the world can they get out of bed on Sunday morning? Is that the sort of church you'd want to go to? A church that should should be named the hypocritical Christian church. Because so many people that you know who go there live so much apart from Christ during the week. Or would you want to go to the church where they're living by faith? 
They're loving Christ. They're loving his people. They're loving his word. They're walking on the path that he trod for us. Not a perfect life, but a Christian life. I'd like to think that's the church we'd all want to go to. They're not perfect. Man, they love Jesus. And our lives should be the life where people look to us and say, man, he or she loves Jesus. I want to love Jesus like he or she does. And see, chances are we have been compelled to go and worship because of the godly example of somebody else. Because there has been a Nehemiah in our life. Not somebody who's perfect, but somebody who loves God, who follows after Christ, who has shown the beauty and excellency of Christ in their faith and life. And we saw them and we go, I want to worship that Jesus. Well, understand, we are all called to be a Nehemiah for someone else. We are all called to set that example. To exult in God's gracious providence in our lives. Let me tell you how good God has been to me. Some churches in their tradition, they have that as part of service. It's testimony, testifying. Somebody say up and say, church, I want to tell you how good God has been to me this past week. And the whole church gets to exult with them. And the big providence and the small providence. We are called to exult in God's gracious providence in our lives. We are called to lead our, to lead our families in worship and to worship. We've said before, if you don't tell your people, if you don't tell your kids about Jesus, the world will tell them against Jesus. And whoever wrote the song, Easy Like Sunday Morning, was childless. And never had to get a toddler ready for church, did they? Can we be honest? For families, Sunday morning can be a little slice of hell, can it? Satan's at work on Sunday mornings. But Jesus is greater. We have a call to get our families to worship. We have a call to lead our families in worship. Are you being a Nehemiah for your family? Are your kids getting in the car with you on Sunday morning going, this joker's taking me to church? After what he just said to me? After I've seen what she's done this week? We have a call to live for Christ in such a way that others are compelled to know more about this Jesus we love and follow and talk about. So because of God's good providence and the faithful worship of him, may we each be imitating Christ so we may be a Nehemiah to someone else. Pray with me.